Corinthians and Hebrews 9, both. 2 Corinthians and Hebrews 9. We're ready to wind down our interweaving of 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21 with Hebrews. So this has been sort of a sub-series, a series within a series. And I think you'll see the importance of the correlation that we're about to make and have been making. This is an apocalypse for right now. It's called Part 10. And it's a series of sermons on this crucial section, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21, which we discern as a universal apocalypse of divine love and divine goodness and omnipotent grace and a real depiction of the so great salvation that Hebrews talks about, which we neglect to our peril. Before I get started, Pam and I were talking with Dave Bradshaw, a longtime dear friend, and with Kim on the phone. Dave has been going through a significant adversity with his health, which is why he hasn't been able to be face-to-face with us and together with us. And so he said to be sure to convey his love to the phalanx, to you, to Telestai, and also from Kim. And I, I know there are several people in our regional assembly as well as local and beyond that are passing through various kinds of adversity, and we have to expect that in this life. And so we should be tender-hearted toward one another, kind and prayerful for one another, and I know that you are, and I appreciate that very much. So, as Brian mentioned, looking forward to communion service, which appropriately will be on Memorial Day, on the Memorial Day weekend next week. It's been a while since we've had it, and I look forward always to that time of intimate fellowship with you all and a celebration of our union with our Lord Jesus Christ in what is known as the Lord's Supper. So, hi, Pastor Flegel. I, I can see that far still. Good to see you. I've been thinking about you this week. Must have been telepathically pulling. You know, every time you try to leave, we pull you back in. <laughs> no. So is that row clear for Michelle? Michelle, just in case you need that, that row to exit, we'll, we'll all understand. Okay. The time is close, right? What's, is there a Thursday? Okay. Be praying for Michelle. She's due Thursday. So. But make a pathway clear. Kevin, be ready. Okay. In Vermont, we used to have a pastime called deer hunting. You have that in Pennsylvania, too. There were two very cardinal sins you could commit if you were deer hunting. The first one is not using enough gun. Robert Ruark, the great hunter, wrote famously a quote that said, use enough gun. And that is true because if you're hunting, especially for food, you want to make a quick, merciful kill. You don't do that with a low caliber. And so one of the cardinal sins was to see 
somebody out in the woods with a 22 at deer season unless they were really, really, really good. The second cardinal sin, I think much worse than that, and is that if someone shoots a deer or any kind of animal that they're intending to cook and eat, and that might be more necessary in the future, that if they wound the animal, they follow the blood trail until they find him, find the animal, find the prey. And not to follow the blood trail, but just to sit back and say, well, I, I just wounded him, is a cardinal sin. It's a vicious sin, really. It's the, the cardinal sin. And I say that because I've recognized recently that I've been on a blood trail for some time. In fact, all of my career as a pastor and a communicator of the word, I've been on a blood trail. And it's the trail of the blood of Christ which paves the way into the holiest of all. And that's really what Hebrews is all about. It's following the blood trail. And, of course, that's symbolic for the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, the saving death, the redemptive death, the universally reconciling death. He tasted death for everyone. And once now at the termini of the ages, he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews, above all books, deals with the blood of Christ and with blood as a form of the Levitical cultus, as a kind of a metaphor referring to the sacrifices of the Old Testament, as we know. And we're about to approach, approach the very precise center of Hebrews, in which the blood of Christ and that blood trail reaches its goal in the Holy of Holies. And so more than just an exegesis, the Lord is leading us as an assembly into that holiest place of all where we become effective priests serving as priests, where we become effective agents of divine beneficence and benevolence, and that's what we are. The New Covenant community, if you were to ask, what is it? Quits it. What is the New Covenant community? They, we, are to be agents of divine benevolence and the divine beneficence, the goodness of God toward all of creation and toward all mankind for our redemption is within a larger circle of the liberation of all creation, something that God unilaterally accomplishes and we receive and then we become messengers of it. We align to this change of situation that's occurred in the cross and the death of our Savior Jesus Christ followed gloriously by his resurrection from the dead, his ascension, his being seated at the Father's right hand, the right hand of the majesty in the heavens, and his ongoing intercession for us all, all of which constitutes so great a salvation. We are those who have received this message of reconciliation we are those who have aligned to it or are aligning ourselves to it. And we are those with the privilege of attesting to it to the world that you have been reconciled by God to God in Christ Jesus. Last week on Mother's Day, we spoke on 
a subject which I call simply all men. And I qualified that as we went through. Today, all things, all things, meaning all created reality. There is in the scripture, and you've probably heard me mention this from time to time over the course of my 40-some years of teaching, this Hebrew phrase, tohu wa bohu, tohu wa bohu. It's found in Genesis 1-2. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. That's the universal creation. God made. But in the beginning, of course, in the Septuagint translation is the Greek N-R-K. You've heard me mention this many times, too. N-R-K. In the beginning. Later on, we know that Jesus toward the end of Revelation, says, I am the beginning. A-R-K, I am the beginning. Paul writes it in Colossians 1 in his famous poem from 115 to 120, where he's, which climaxes with universal reconciliation. He calls the Lord Jesus Christ the beginning. He is the beginning. So in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth isn't necessarily ultimately a reference to a temporal historical event in the past, but to the whole overall plan of God to create all things in Jesus Christ. And this is where we are, 2 Corinthians 5.17, right at the heart of the matter. If anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation, and all are in Christ because he has effected that reconciliation. A new creation in Christ Jesus is the goal of God. It is the accomplished goal of God. It is a goal yet to be realized and manifested to us. But we have the gift of an eternal perspective and see it already accomplished, as Moses did when he wrote those words. In fact, every teaching from the scriptures, every act of exposition and exegesis from the scriptures is an expansion on Genesis 1-1, NRK, in the beginning, in Christ, God makes the heavens and the earth. At the end of Revelation, the end is the beginning and the beginning is the end. Look, I'm making all things new, says the enthroned God. And all things are therefore benefited by the infinite benevolence and kindness and beneficence of God. This is what is called the cosmogenetic act. The cosmogenetic act. The act by which the cosmos had its genesis. It's very simple. Cosmogenetic act. Genesis 1.1. But in Genesis 1.2 it says, and the earth became Tohu wa bohu. The Bible doesn't indicate immediately what intervened to make the earth uninhabitable. That's one of the meanings of it. Tohu wa bohu, uninhabitable, without purpose, without meaning. It's a nothingness. And we're going to see what that means. The earth was unformed and void. Tohu wabohu. Darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered 
over the surface of the water. Now in the prophet Samuel's farewell address to Israel, he used a little variation of this word when he said in, again, his farewell address to Israel, he said in 1 Samuel 12, 21, don't turn back to those things which are nothing, which don't accomplish anything and who do not deliver because they are nothing, speaking there of idols. Tohu is the word he uses, just tohu. Nothing or futile, not real, useless. In Isaiah 34, 11, we see the word tohu wabohu used again. The prophet Isaiah says, horned owl and hawk will possess it, speaking of the land of the northern kingdom, kingdom of Israel after judgment. Screech owl and raven will live there, he says. He will stretch over it the measuring line of confusion and the plumb line of the empty void, tohu wa bohu, comparing a judged nation to that condition, uninhabitable by man and by God. But Isaiah 45, 18 says, For thus says Adonai, the Lord, who created the heavens, God, who shaped and made the earth, who established and created it, not to be tohu bara'ah, meaning not to be chaos. He created it not to be chaos, but formed it to be inhabited. I am Adonai, the Lord. There is no other, he says. Then finally, there's a use of this in Jeremiah 4.23. Jeremiah sees a vision of the judged land of Israel. And he says, I looked at the earth, meaning the land, and it was formless and empty. Tohu, wabohu. I looked to the heavens, and their light was gone. In Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light into this darkness. Paul was doing an exegesis of Genesis 1, and it's hardly detectable in 2 Corinthians, but he's doing an exegesis of Genesis 1. In the passage of the center passage of 2 Corinthians, because in 2 Corinthians 4-6, Paul the Apostle says, he who said, light, shine in darkness has shone into our hearts giving the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ that's a profound utterly profound verse 2 Corinthians 4 6 I never say it I never look at it I never read it I never think about it without entering crossing the threshold, let's say, of worship. So that's a hint that Paul's doing an exegesis of Genesis 1 here, and that he's showing that his own heart was empty and void. He was in a persecuting mode of Jesus Christ. He was motivated by rasantamat, by anger, by hatred, by hostility, and even persecuting the church of God. He was not accomplishing anything. He was engaged in that which is not real, futile, useless, chaotic. 
but the light that shone from the face of Jesus Christ, perhaps on the road to Damascus, shone into Paul's heart and gave him the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. And so as we read 2 Corinthians 5.17, the old that has passed away for us is the state and the situation of humanity in tohu wa bohu. That's our state before. It's darkness, it's chaos, it's lack of light, it's lack of purpose, it's empty, it's futile. So the old that has passed away in 2 Corinthians 5.17 is precisely that state of tohu wa bohu. The darkness disappears in the light that shines from the face of Jesus Christ. That's what the ministry of the word is all about. The darkness in our heart disappears when the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shines into our heart. One day all will know me this way, says the Lord, and that you'll not have to say any longer, know the Lord to your fellow citizen. All will know me from the least to the greatest. Until then, we say, know the Lord. Know that he has reconciled you in his son. Know that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing your trespasses to you. Know this. Be reconciled to God is simply our appeal that people recognize that they have been reconciled with God. Know the Lord, we say. Know the Lord. Know the omnipotent grace of the Lord God. Know his kindness. Know that he is the God of love and of peace. Know that his son has offered a sacrifice in such unspeakable salvific love know this know that God considers you his friend and no longer his enemy and that he reconciled us while we were still hostile to him he died for us while we were ungodly that's why the God who judges and people always ask the question what about his justice what about God's judgment well here's God's justice he justifies the ungodly in Romans 4, 5. The God who is the judge of all was judged for all. The God who put all judgment into the hands of the Son of Man, that Son of Man is Jesus Christ, who received the prerogative of judgment and with it was judged for us all. The judge became the judged. The priest became the sacrifice and the lamb. The Lord became the servant, even the slave, and he became obedient to the extent of the death of the cross. Philippians 2.5 initiates a poem. There are two hymns in the scripture that you could take the rest of your life meditating on. One is Colossians 1.15 to 1.20, ending in universal reconciliation by the peace that was made through the blood of the cross of the Son of God's love. The other is Philippians 2, 6 through 11, which was a hymn that preceded Paul's epistle. It was known already. Paul only added one little snippet of his own. When he talked about the Son of God, when he talked about Jesus having divinity, being divinity, the very essence of deity, 
And let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who became in the form of humanity, who became a slave. And in the form of a slave, he became obedient, even to the extent of death. Paul added this, the death of the cross. Not just death, the death which included all humankind. For when one died for all, all died. The death. He is the one who died in Romans 6, 7. He is the one who died in Romans 8, 34. So who is he who condemns then? Who is the one who's going to accuse you? And whose accusation is going to stick? Who's going to say you're in the wrong? He who, was, who died for you? The one who died? Is he going to accuse you? And who is going to condemn? The only one that has the right to is God, but God only justifies. That's his judgment. God judges by justifying, and he justified the ungodly. Why? Because Christ, at just the right time, died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 6. Romans 4, 5. Connect them. Connect the dots. Follow the blood trail. It leads through the torn curtain of his flesh into the holiest place of all, heaven itself, where you and I have access. Access. Access to intercede for this world. All the more, the more I see that it's in desperate need of intercession, the more I'm moved to intercede. We are agents of divine benevolence. In Hebrews, we're going to learn this, and I hope to teach it even this for this Wednesday for the online message. The scripture says that when Christ came, and he did, Christ came as the great archpriest, and he was bringing with him good things. And there are two takes on this. There are, I, I can't wait to show this more clearly through the exegesis. But he is the archpriest of good things. And it, there are two meanings to this. Good things that have already come and good things that are coming. Good things because of the benevolence and beneficence of God. He is good to all of creation, says Psalm 145.9. He is good and shows compassion to all that he has made. He shows mercy to all in Romans 11.32. He will reconcile the world. He has reconciled the world to himself, and so there's no one in the world that he will send to a place called hell. It's impossible. In fact, it's blasphemous to even entertain the thought. And so he is the high priest of good things that have come and good things that are coming. We know what the good things that have come are. It's a radical, permanent alteration of the human situation from one of enmity, a situation described in Romans 3.10 graphically, 3.10 through 18. There's none that does good. There's none righteous. Their mouth 
is an open sepulcher. They're, under their tongues is the poison of asps. What a condition. That's the condition before the situation change, before God reconciled the world to himself. While they were in that state, while they called for the crucifixion of the Son of God, while we were yet enemies. And that's the situation of tohu wabohu. Genesis 1-2, reflected in Romans 3.10 through 18. And in the 19, as we learned in Romans, Paul's opponent says, yeah, therefore, look, the whole world is worthy of being under the wrath of God. And Paul said, and then he goes on to say, there shall no flesh be justified in God's sight. Quoting properly Psalm 143.2. But he was going to say, the opponent was going to say, except by circumcision and works of the Mosaic law. Paul finished his sentence for him in Romans 3.20. And he said, that's right. No one alive will ever be justified in God's sight by the works of the law. But now God has revealed a righteousness apart from law, apart from works, that is upon all. And he goes on to explain that the one who died for all was justified. And so the one who died as the culmination of his faithful obedience, when that one died, all died. And when all died, all were justified because no one living can be justified in God's sight. So all died when Christ died. Christ who died was justified Romans 6, 7, and so all who died with Christ were justified in his justifying, saving death. This is good news. This is good news. Is, it's not good news to tell people they have to admit they're a sinner. They don't even know they're a sinner until after they're in Christ and look back and say, wow, I was a hell of a sinner. You don't know that until you're in Christ and he opens your eyes. You, don't, you can't admit you're a sinner on the pathway to salvation. You can't do it. You're saved, and then you admit that you, you, you look back and say, man, I was a sinner, but he became sin for me. That's the gospel. It's not preached very often by people who claim to be evangelists and pastors. And that's a shame. I find myself more at odds with them than I do with the so-called world. And so... God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And you know what? That's the same as saying in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In Christ God made the new heavens and the new earth because in Christ God reconciled the world, ended the state of tohu wabohu, ended that condition of mankind defined exactly and precisely and scripturally in Romans 3.10 through 18. A pretty graphic description. Now the Messiah has come as an archpriest of good things that have come. According to the Nestle Allen text, that's ton gegomenon agathon. The Byzantine text has ton melonton agathon. A.T. Robertson rightly says they both apply, meaning when he came he brought good things that are already happening that have already happened, the situational change of all humankind from hostility to reconciliation. And he also brought with him things that are about to be revealed in the parousia, the change of condition of all creation into glory. 
the change of the condition of the mortal bodies that we inhabit even now into bodies of glory, soma doxa, like his own. He does it by the same power that he makes all things subject to himself. So as the Messiah has come as an archpriest of good things that have come and are coming, the things that have come, the alteration of the situation of all humanity to reconciliation, and things that are coming, the alteration of the universal condition, the liberation of creation from its slavery to corruption, the glorification of all mankind, the dead and the living, the what Calvin would call the elect and the, repro- and the reprobate, so-called, all glorified. Jesus became the only reprobate on the cross, and Jesus was the elect one for all of us in resurrection. And then it says he came with the greater and more complete tent, not made by human hands, that is, not of this creation. What creation is it of then? The new creation in Christ. What's very important for us to understand then is that by Jesus' once and for all sacrifice, there has come about already a very good thing by the benevolence of God, a radical and permanent alteration of the human situation from one of enmity against God called tohu wabohu to reconciliation with God, order and peace, love and grace. A change from the situation of humanity described in Romans 3:10 to 18 of complete enmity to God to reconciliation with God by an act, listen carefully, by an act that was as much as God's doing in Christ as the act of universal creation, which God performed NRK in Christ. You weren't there. You weren't even there to have a part in it. Neither was I. Neither was anyone else. God was in Christ, creating the heavens and the earth. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. You and I had nothing to do with it. It's a unilateral act of God. It's done. It's finished. The human race is reconciled. It's in a reconciled situation. Does it know it? No. That's why we're here. We're the agents of divine benevolence. We are the the messengers of this wonderful message that's good news indeed. And you don't have to qualify it and say, well, there's bad news that goes with it. And, you know, and if you don't believe, you're going to burn forever in hell because God loves you that much. He loved the world so much that anybody that doesn't behave correctly or believe correctly or adhere to his doctrine will burn forever in a blast furnace with no relief ever, ever, no matter how much they scream and plead. That's how much God loved the world. You say you're being facetious. Oh, that's just right. You're correct. Now, I'm using great restraint in my younger years here. In the beginning, that is, in Christ, God made the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. Everything that came into being from non-existence came into being through the word and nothing without him in John 1.3. God is a specialist in two activities. One, bringing things into being from non-being. 
bringing things that are not into being, into existence, and in raising the dead to life. Two things you can't do, I can't do. In the beginning, God made that which was not into something. He brought out of non-existence into existence all created reality. And in Christ, he reconciled all created reality out of a state of tohu wabohu. The only thing the will of the creature got mankind and creation into is tohu wabohu. The only thing the greenies can do is put more of this into the world. Tohu wabohu. Every act, I'm, I've been old enough to realize that when in the greening of America that happened at University of Vermont, everybody had a copy of the greening. You think green is new? The greening of America. And they had it in the pocket, in their back pocket of their farmer jeans because they all wore them. And so they talked about, let's be nonconformists, they all said. And they all looked exactly alike as they said it. Not having showered recently in most cases, a little disheveled, farmer jeans and bare feet or whatever, and uh, in the back pocket, the greening of America. And the more the green policy has happened, the more tohu wabohu has been unleashed on the earth. And the more people think they can be free from the truth of the word of God, the more tohu wabohu has been unleashed on this earth. Right now, this nation is under the state of tohu wabohu, and the only thing that will rescue it is this message I'm preaching to you today that God was in Christ reconciling the world to itself, to himself. And it's acceptance by, the church needs to be reconciled to that message. The church doesn't need to be reconciled to God. The church is part of the whole of the world that's been reconciled to God. And whether we know it or not, we have solidarity with the world even though we have no conformity to the world. We're not to be conformed to the world, but we are to have solidarity with the world. We are part of the world, with the world, and if we act otherwise, we're Pharisees called separatists. We're not separated from the world in that sense. We have a solidarity with the world, but not a conformity to it. That's the, the fine line. That's the threading of the needle. And so we have a message for the world. Everything that came into being from non-existence came into being through the word. The only thing human will can do is bring more tohu wa bohu. Well, you know we have free will, right? Yes, we do. And our will, when it's free and autonomous from God's will, produces a state of chaos and disorder. We make the wrong decisions, we marry the wrong mates, we have the wrong lives, we choose the wrong paths, we bring more tohu wabohu into the situation. We make decisions that affect another person, that affect another person, that we don't even know affects the whole world ultimately. Tohu wabohu. You want to involve your will? Your will and my will brings more tohu wabohu. But thank God now it is God in you, both willing and doing of his good pleasure. God, what God wills is the reconciliation of all things. It's the mystery of his will. 
And so everything that came into being from non-existence came into being through the word, the eternal word, Jesus Christ, and nothing without him in John 1.3. God is a specialist in bringing things from non-existence into existence and in raising the dead. Once we were not a people at all, now we're the people of God. Who made that happen? Not you, not me. Once we were not a people, now we are the very people of God. Who, who made that happen? Well, Psalm 100 says, it is he that has made us and not we ourselves. We had nothing to do with it. When God thought it's the right time, he revealed his son in the apostle Paul, in the Saul the persecutor. Paul said, when God thought it was the right time, he revealed his son in me. He revealed his son to me. Either way you want to slice it, it's what God chose in the time that God chose it. He's going to do that for everybody either post-death or pre- or before-death. And so it's up to God. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. Once we had not received mercy, now we've received mercy. It is according to his mercy that he saved us and not by any righteous works which we have done. By his mercy he saved us. And when did he save us by his mercy? Well, God looked upon the whole human race and he probably said something like this in all of his thinking about the future. Some of them are actually going to think because of a misunderstanding of Paul's words that they were saved by their own faith. Some of them are going to think that. So I'm going to throw in there Paul's wisdom, and I'm going to give Paul some wisdom about salvation, and he's going to say that I'm going to summarize, he's going to show that I summarized everybody in the whole world under a category called unbelief, so that I could have saving mercy on them all. What is your qualification to be saved? Well, I believe. No, your qualification to receive saving mercy is unbelief. You were saved because of your unbelief and God's mercy, not because of your faith and God owing you something. That's a work. In fact, faith has become a work. I was saved by my faith. Then you were saved by a work that you did. It's a psychological work maybe, but it's a work that you did. You're not, that's not the gospel. So all things, that's the subject for today, all things... Panta, without the article. With the article, ta, panta. That makes sure that you know that it's a singularity, that it's a solidarity of all things without the exception of one created thing. You say, what about death? Not created. What about sin? Not created. What about Hades? Not created. Not a created being of God. Death in Hades is the one single entity with the name, the same name, death, Thanatos, and Hades that goes into the lake of fire and burns forever. Not any human name. No human name. No angelic name. The name of non-entities. Death and sin. Death and sin tried to come about into existence, but God simply called them what they were, non-existent. And they don't make the cut of the new creation. They're not part of the creation. So by him, all things, panta, came to be through dia, him. And not one thing, not one thing, he said, not a single thing in creation was created or came into being apart from him. John 1, 3. For by... Or we could say, in him all things, ta 
panta, were created in heaven and on earth. The heavens and the earth in Genesis 1.1. Whether the invisible or visible, heavenly or earthly dominions. Do you want to know what's the object of God's saving grace? Not just visible creation, invisible creation. The realm of super creatures called angelic beings. Whether visible or invisible, heavenly or earthly dominions of regal or lordly authority. Why does he call them dominions and authorities? Because he's talking about jurisdictions in the invisible universe where angels are regal kings over certain regions and jurisdictions. Angelic super creatures. Creatures called Ha Elohim in the scripture because there's something that can't really even describe them in our concept of angels. Super creatures, living beings. They're described as living beings in Revelation 4, before the throne of God. Whether heavenly or earthly dominions of regal or lordly authority, or those rulers and authorities themselves, all things, I'm talking here from Colossians 1.16, all things, ta panta, all things were created through him and for him. Colossians 1.16. All things were created through him, by him, and for him. And God was pleased through him to reconcile everything, ta panta, to himself, making peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I said, Paul says, whether things and beings on earth or things and beings in the heavens. That's Colossians 1.20. So in that wonderful poem, we have universal reconciliation at the end. Where's reconciliation, universal reconciliation in the Bible? Right here. Katalage ta panta. Reconciliation of everything without exception. You want to call it reconciliation that's universal? I would say that that's pretty accurate. That one poem that's in the scripture that Paul builds an epistle around is Colossians 1.15 to 1.20, and it ends up with everything being reconciled to God in Christ by the blood of his cross. There's the blood trail. The other poem is found in Philippians 2.6 through 11, and afterwards Paul talks about fear and trembling and reverential awe at that whole prospect. It ends up with every tongue acknowledging and every knee bending and everyone willfully and willingly and voluntarily and joyfully and worshipfully saying Yahweh is Yeshua to the glory of God. It ends up in a universal chorus of praise like the Psalms end up in a universal chorus of praise. I think it's the last psalm in which the scripture says, let everything that has breath praise Yahweh. So the two poems around which Paul builds epistles both have to do with a universal, uh, let me just say it, salvation. Universal salvation. Universal salvation. If you say that, you're going to start a spark, and the spark is going to start a fire, spiritually speaking. Well, the fire has already been started. Jesus even said that. The fire has already started. And God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. 
This message is going to be a fire that burns up all the dross and all the false stuff, I was almost said crap, that comes out of Christendom. And this is going to be a drawing card to a generation that's pretty much had it with Christendom. And who can blame them? It's notable that in Colossians, as in 2 Corinthians, the act of the universal creation by God in Christ is linked with the act of universal reconciliation by God in Christ. Let me say that again. It's notable that in Colossians, as in 2 Corinthians 5.14-21, the act of universal creation by God in Christ is linked with the act of universal reconciliation by God in Christ. In effect, God reconciled all that God initially created that subsequently came into the situation described in the Hebrew as tohu wa bohu, formless and void, uninhabitable by God and by created beings. Universal reconciliation, therefore, is also linked to the universal new creation in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Look, everything old has passed away. Tohu wa bohu, gone. Everything has become new. All things, in most translations, tapanta, have become new. And if you don't find tapanta in 2 Corinthians 5.17 in your favorite Greek text, it's in 5.18 where Paul says all things are from God. All things are from God. All things are from him. All things are through him. All things are to him, says Romans 11.36, a wonderful Trinitarian verse. All things, that's all created reality, is from him, the Father, through him, the Son, the Word, and back to him by the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. The Holy Spirit's part is to bring all the creation back to the Father and the Son. And so that's why Genesis talks about the spirit hovering over the face of the deep. His part in bringing the world out of the abyss of tohu wa bohu. It's a divine act. 2 Corinthians 5.17b then to get to our passage. The old things, ta archaea, where we get our word archaic which means the former situation of tohu wabohu has passed away. It's pretty amazing here. The old things, ta-archaea, which is the state of tohu wabohu, has passed away. Look, he says. And he means look by faith because only faith perceives this change of situation. That's why you're going to be called nuts by Christians who don't walk by faith and by non-Christians who have doesn't even consider faith. The old things have passed away. Look, all things, the Byzantine or majority text has tapanta, all things. Some translations simply say new things have come, agreeing again with Hebrews 9, 11, the dead center of, well, the living center of Hebrews, have become new, have become new. All things have become new. That's the universal, radical alteration of the situation. 
Now everything is from God who reconciled us, the world, to himself through Christ and gave us, the new covenant community, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's, again, the radical alteration of the universal human situation. Where else have we seen this link up? Where else have we seen this? link up between the universal creation and universal reconciliation. Where else? How about the first four verses, the one single periodic sentence that kicked off Hebrews? Remember that, the exordium? Let me read it, Hebrews 1.1. In many parts and in various ways, long ago, God who spoke provisionally to the Father's in the prophets, in these last days has spoken definitively and with finality to us in a son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe, the ages or the universe, is, is a, it's a term for the universe, through whom he made the universe, the son, who is the visible radiance of God's glory and the exact visible self-representation of his invisible reality, who upholds the universe by his omnipotent power and his omnipotent decree, that decree being to Tetelestai, finished, and carries everything that happens in it through the course of all time toward a redemptive objective, who has made purification for sins. Look at it. Through whom he made the universe, who has made purification for sins. There's universal creation and universal reconciliation under the term made purification for sins. Who has sat down in the highest heights of the, at the right hand of the eternal majesty, having become as much better than the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The angels were above men, but when Jesus Christ took on humanity and became a human being like us, he was always the man. He was always a divine man, even before his incarnation. But he took on human nature like ours to elevate humanity above the angels. And so we will judge angels. That means we will administrate over them in the future world. Didn't you know that? Paul said that to the Corinthians. You guys seem to know so much technology and science and philosophy and all the wisdom of man. Did you know that you're going to judge angels? Did you know that? So did you, if, you do, if you're going to judge angels, don't you think there's certain matters in the church that you can deal with privately and with wisdom and with this, the spiritual, with those that are spiritual, restoring some, someone? I think so. The problem with many people are not restored when they're overtaken by a sin because in Galatians 6.1 it says you that are spiritual restore such a one. So there's a problem in a church where nobody's spiritual. Sin overtakes someone and there's no one around to restore them other than people who will judge them or be tempted to follow the same sin that they're overtaken by or who will gossip about it or malign about it, because only the spiritual, those that are pneumatic and controlled by the Holy Spirit, can have any part in restoring a fellow believer who's been overtaken by some offense, some sin. Only the spiritual will follow the lead of love covers a multitude of sins. Now, God made the universe 
by and in his son. God reconciled the world that had come into the state of tohu wa bohu by the wrong use of creaturely freedom, Adam's sin. God reconciled the world by the right use of human volition in his son only, Jesus Christ only. So God reconciled the world, which by the entrance of sin and death had come into the situation called tohu wa bohu by and in his son. The Lamb of God took away the sin of the world. That means the sin that affects the whole universe of proportionate being, not just humanity, the angelic community. What is more important than the entrance of sin into the world that means what carries a lot more weight than the entrance of sin into the world and the resultant situation called tohu wabohu is the creation of the world by God in Jesus Christ, who is the beginning and the end. Moreover, what is also more important than the entrance into the world of the alienating force of sin and death is the entrance into the world of the Son once in the termini of the ages who removed sin by the sacrifice of himself and defeated the one who had the leverage over the fear of death. He had leverage over people because of the fear of death. And Christ came and defeated that devil who had the power of death by his own death and resurrection from the dead. This is the present reality that counts. This is the reality that counts. Not the alienating force of sin and death that came into the world, but the reconciling power of God that came into the world through Jesus Christ. And he began to reconcile the world at his incarnation, right at the beginning of his incarnation when he was hated by Herod. When he came into this world to, to breathe its contaminated atmosphere of sin, its polluted atmosphere. And he endured hostility of sinners against himself. But, of course, that reconciliation found its culmination in his death. What counts in this standing now, this now that stands and remains now forever, what counts is that now, once at the termini of the ages, Christ appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, which is, and I'm going to be teaching a lot on that, Hebrews 9.26, because Hebrews 9.26, in my view, is as defining and final a statement of the New Testament as is 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He who knew no sin became sin in 5.21, that we would be made the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin, and in becoming sin put away sin, experienced himself the cutting off, he was cut off, but not for himself in another 9.26, Hebrews 9.26, in connection with Daniel 9.26. When he became sin, he was cut off, but not for himself, but for us. And he became sin, and in the act of becoming sin, he put away sin itself. How can God impute sin when it's been put away? He doesn't. We might, but that's because we're still in a state of tohu wa bohu. So then, the reality that counts is this reality. 
The reality with an uppercase R that forever supersedes the reality lowercase r of sin and death. It's the reality uppercase r which summed up in a single word in a single name is Jesus. The scope of the creation, especially the new creation brought about by God in Christ, and the scope of the situation called tohu wabohu is the same scope of the act of reconciliation by God in Christ. In other words, the scope of the universal creation is the same as the scope of the act of God's reconciliation. The scope, in all cases, is universal. When you get to be face-to-face with the Lord, when, if you want to call it, heaven. When you go to heaven, you know what God might do that might surprise you? Instead of seeing your dear loved ones who passed away before you, he might bring you right face-to-face with the group of people you never thought would be there. Just to start everything with a surprise. What are you doing here? No, what are you doing here? You you were always pretty self-righteous. How come you're even here? They might say to you or me, I don't know. But no, not anyone here for sure. (laughs) All right. The love of Christ controls us now. Precisely because we made this judgment that if one died for all, then all died. Since one died for all, all died. And I've tried to make this point over and over again. It's precisely when we made the judgment of universal reconciliation that we began to love all people. You can't love someone whom you think is destined for hell and deserves it. How do you, uh, we look at a, a whole segment of the human race and say they're destined for hell. And we, you know, I hope they die and go there and rotten hell and all this other stuff. But when we recognize that God has reconciled all to himself in Christ and that when one died for all, all died in him to be justified in him, you start to look at everybody differently, not after their sin or their sinfulness or what we would consider their deserving. We finally figure out that deserves got nothing to do with it, as William Money said in Unforgiven. But then he shot somebody afterwards, so we're not going to follow that example. But... Deserve has nothing, deserving has nothing to do with going to heaven or going to hell. Deserve's got nothing to do with it. This is the scope of creation is the same as the scope of reconciliation. The scope in both cases is universal. Behold, I'm making all things new, he said. That's a, an anticipation of the change of condition, but then he says, It's done. It's done. The heart is dumbfounded by the sacrificial salvific love, wrote Bulgakov, whom we looked at before. The Russian monk was right when he said, the heart is dumbfounded by this sacrificial salvific love, and the mind is stupefied by this mystery. Suffering for the sins of the world as for his own. The God-man takes sin upon himself. Reconciliation, the word used in 2 Corinthians, differs from redemption, the word used in Hebrews. 
in that simply reconciliation is coupled with the non-imputation of sins in 2 Corinthians 5.19, whereas redemption is the forgiveness of sins, Colossians 1.14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Reconciliation, God doesn't impute sin. So they're really both reconciliation and redemption, as well as justification and sanctification, are descriptive of our so great salvation accomplished unilaterally by God in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. On top of these definitions, expiation is the removal of sin and sins. Propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin, which is an element of his radical love for sinners. God's, the propitiation, when it is thought of as God's wrath against sin being satisfied, it's precisely that. God's wrath is not against man. It's against sin. And Jesus became sin, and God executed his wrath against sin in Jesus Christ so that wrath actually becomes a part and parcel of God's radical love for mankind. That's a new twist on Augustine's favorite saying, which is God loves the sinner but hates the sin. I'll go way past that one, way past that, and say God judged the sin. God's wrath was toward the sin and never toward man. God's love reconciled man to himself. The faith by which we walk as 2 Corinthians 5.17 is the faith polished by love. It's fully matured in love. Faith works with love. In that faith, we actually discern the totality of God's love for mankind. You can't love all mankind till you've come to the realization that God reconciled all mankind to himself, that they're in a state of reconciliation, that it has happened, that he has already drawn all to himself, that he has already embraced all to himself. And why should I hate someone whom God has embraced in his son? The only way I do it is if I have this idea of deserving. Now, as we close, consider this. Faith works with love in that faith actually discerns the totality of God's love, the total range of it, the total scope of it, what it's done. Faith recognizes the entirety of God's love, not only for the so-called elect, which is a limited few in Calvin's damnable conception and deplorable, deplorable doctrine of election, but also for the so-called reprobates in Calvin's conception. Calvin's conception of a limited atonement has the deplorable effect of restricting the perception of God's love and making it other than a total love that works with a universal efficacious grace to save all humankind. Thank God for Karl Barth, who saved us from Calvin. The elect and the reprobate. Jesus discerned that the religious leaders who intended to kill him did not have the love of God in them. They didn't see the total range of God's love. The love of God is not in us unless his total love is in us. Because the love of God is not a partial love. The love of God is not in us unless it's a total love. Through faith we understand not only that the material universe was created by the utterance of God, but also that God's love is for the material universe and creates its redemption. Faith discerns the total scope of God's love in creation. 
and in the eradication of tohu wabohu and in reconciliation. So we become people who announce this glorious truth. We aren't announcers of the kingdom of God leading to its expansion. We're announcers of the kingdom of God as it mysteriously expands with or without us. It's the Lord's doing and not ours. Though there are many workers for the kingdom of God and we're among them and should be. They are proclaimers of the kingdom of God as it expands, not the causes of its expansion. Let your kingdom come, Father. So please notice as we close, God reconciled us to himself in 518, and God reconciled the world to himself in 519. Our reconciliation, that of the new covenant community, was only brought about by God in the context of a wider circle of the reconciliation of the world. So we have a solidarity with the whole world. We're not conformed to it because we know this reconciliation. So we who've been awakened to that fact of reconciliation simply go to the world to wake them up. Awake, you sleeper, and rise from the dead. Awake, you woke, you're asleep. You dope. Awake, you woke. The woke, you call yourself woke, you are definitely calling yourself somebody asleep to the gospel because it's a divisive ideology. It is satanic. It is devilish. And so is all this other trans crap. It's from the devil who hates the whole idea of two genders and and wants to bring in tohu wabohu, confusion. And yes, drag does harm children It does harm children because the same people who think you should have these little shows of drag queen shows also want to castrate boys and do mastectomies on nine-year-old girls. So don't tell me there's no harm in this movement of Satan. There is harm in this movement. And you and I better have on the full armor from God and not be conformed to this world. Because it's going into a state of judgment. This nation is going to be judged with a harsher judgment than any nation ever has been judged in history with the exception of the possibility of this gospel escaping, being unchained from its dungeon and going all over and making some progress really fast. And it might even save a lot of people from making changes in their life that lead to suicide and already is by the thousands It may even save people who have made that change without their knowledge and all of a sudden realize the horrible thing they've done to themselves and this gospel just might save them from suicide. Now you say, that was pretty rough. (laughs) That's nothing. It's nothing compared to what's coming. And it won't be words. The judgment that's coming. People talk about calorie intake. Well, wait until there's no calories to intake. Wait. And I'm saying these are things that I see coming except for the grace of God intervening. So compare this. Equate this. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Equate that with in the beginning In Christ, God made the heavens and the earth. What's the difference? There really isn't one. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, is the same as 
God in the beginning made the heavens and the earth. God, the act of Jesus Christ, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the act of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world is the cosmogenetic act. Those of us who know Jesus Christ and him crucified can't look at anything in the universe without considering that it was made by the crucified Christ, that it came into being at the moment, the eternal moment, not the temporal or the historical moment, the eternal moment of the slaughter of the lamb is what brought about the creation, which will be a new creation. For those who can say with Paul, I determined to know nothing except, from, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is impossible for us to conceive of creation, especially the new creation, without thinking of the crucified Christ, risen, exalted, enthroned, in whom all things are summed up. The act of God in Christ reconciling the world to himself cannot be dissociated from the act of God in the beginning, in Christ, making the new heavens and the new earth and the spirit brooding over the old to bring us out of the tohu wabohu. Our nation can go one way or another. It can go tohu wabohu into total chaos. We've seen little hints of that. We've seen little hints of it. Into total chaos and the cities burning down and urban terrorism and divisiveness and ideologies that are totally destructive. Or we can see one of the most magnificent historical renaissances in history where a nation is lifted up out of the possibility of chaos and disorder and destruction by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the power of the reconciling word of God. You say to me, which, where do you incline? I incline toward the latter. And what I just said before, the controversial things I just said before are not intended to condemn. They are intended to protect. They are intended to be protective. If you, if you really love the children, then we will protect them from destructive and even suicidal tendencies from the woke ideology that has come upon our nation. And it's come out of a place called Tartarus where the spirits were in dungeons. They're now out of the dungeons and they got to be driven back to the dungeons. Put on the full armor from God. But especially with an emphasis on this, let your feet be shod, shooed, as it were. You shoe a horse, you shoe your feet. Shod means shooed. Let your feet have on the shoes of the gospel of peace. What is the gospel of peace? The good news of the reconciliation of all people. The reconciliation of the world in Christ. Take up and put on the full armor from God, not least... The shoes of the gospel of peace. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity, for preaching and teaching. 
an opportunity for the word of God to go forth. I pray that you'll defeat the evil one in our time, that you'll defeat his machinations and his destructive tendencies toward our generation, especially toward the children, our children and grandchildren coming up. We pray that you will cause this gospel to be unchained and that it might drive back the spirits into their chains of darkness, drive them back. Father, we ask as we approach the Memorial Day celebration of our nation, we ask that you will allow this gospel to have free sway, that you will give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ even to the most benighted souls, even to the souls who are riddled with the greatest darkness, even the souls that are in the present darkness more than ever. We pray that you'll give them this startling, surprising, glorious light and that some of the spokesmen for the other side, like it happened to Paul, some of the spokesmen for the other side would become your spokesmen in our time that our nation and our world will be overrun by Apostle Paul's. We ask nothing short of this in Jesus' name. Amen.